From the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, this is Human Centered. Cognitive psychologist Alison Gopnik has argued that we need to develop artificial intelligences like we raise our children by reinforcing our values during their development. Award-winning science fiction author Ted Chang agrees. His novella, The Life Cycle of Software Objects, considers what it might look like to care for AIs as though they were growing sentient beings and what it could mean to be a parent to them. In this episode of Human Centered, we bring these two minds together for a conversation exploring how we care for each other and what that might teach us about how we care for thinking machines. Ted Chang is one of America's most celebrated contemporary science fiction authors, known for works such as Tower of Babylon, Hell is the Absence of God, The Merchant and the Alchemist's Gate, Exhalation, and Story of Your Life, which served as the basis for the 2016 film Arrival. His work has earned numerous literary honors, including four Nebula Awards, four Hugo Awards, and six Locus Awards. In recent years, Chang has garnered attention for nonfiction writing as well, perhaps most notably in The New Yorker with his essays Why Computers Won't Make Themselves Smarter, ChatGPT is a blurry JPEG of the web, and Will AI Become the New McKinsey? We'll drop links to those in the episode notes. Alison Gopnik is a distinguished professor of psychology and affiliate professor of philosophy at University of California, Berkeley. She currently serves as president of the Association of Psychological Science and is the author of acclaimed books, including The Gardener and the Carpenter, What the New Science of Child Development Tells Us About the Relationship Between Parents and Children, The Philosophical Baby, What Children's Minds Tell Us About Truth, Love, and the Meaning of Life, and The Scientist in the Crib, What Early Learning Tells Us About the Mind. Gopnik is very much a public intellectual as well, from TED Talks to appearances on popular podcasts such as Hidden Brain and The Ezra Klein Show, and writing for The New York Times, The Atlantic, Slate, and for several years, the Mind and Matter column in The Wall Street Journal. We'll drop links to those in the episode notes as well. She was a 2003-4 CASBIS fellow and remains connected with the center through one of two CASBIS projects motivating her pairing with Ted Chang today. She's the leader of the center's project on the social science of caregiving, which interrogates lessons offered in how we align our familial values with an extended community, as well as with the design of new technologies, including AI. The other CASBIS project inspiring today's conversation is called Imagining Adaptive Societies, which uses speculative fiction to help us imagine societies capable of responding to the major challenges of our age. We'll link to both CASBIS projects in the episode notes if you want to learn more. But for now, let's get to the conversation between Alison Gopnik and Ted Chang. Well, I am so delighted to be part of this conversation with Ted Chang. Um, a little of the background is that when I started doing work looking at AI in and trying to use children's learning as a model for AI, I had about five different people who sent me copies of Ted's amazing novella, The Life Cycle of Software Objects, including Ezra Klein when I was on his show. And when I read it, I was so blown away by the fact that not only was this a wonderful novella about AI, but it was also the best account of being a parent and a caregiver, or the best literary account of that that I had ever read. It's interesting that there aren't more 
conversations about caregiving in the literary tradition. And we could think about some of those reasons, but this seemed to me to be the most profound one and the one that captured caregiving best. And it may just be that that's part of speculative fiction is that by imagining an alternative context in which you had to take care of, of uh, you had to take care of sentient beings that depended on you, you could understand and think about it more deeply than we do when we're in the trenches of actually taking care of real children who are the ones that we are really taking care of and really raising. Um, uh, and in fact, I, I spontaneously did something I had never done before in my entire life, which was write a fan letter to Ted about how impressed I was and how much I, I, uh, I love the stories and the work. And in general, Ted's work has been very interactive with the kinds of ideas that we have at Caspes, it's a wonderful example of science and humanities speaking to one another in this literary way. And as it turns out, there's actually two projects at Caspes happening right at this moment um, that Ted's work speaks to really beautifully, one of which is the uh, Imagining Adaptive Societies project, which is taking speculative fiction and the strengths of speculative fiction and connecting it to the kind of speculative fiction that comes when we're thinking about how to make a better society or a, a better world. And the other is the project that I've been working on, on the social science of caregiving, trying to think about caregiving, not just in the narrow context of, you know, the parenting blogs, but trying to think about caregiving much more generally as a really essential part of human nature, as involving not just children, but the ill, the, the elderly, and also not just being about humans, but involving the way that we feel about the natural world, the way that we feel about artificial intelligences. Um, and I think the case of artificial intelligence has made the significance and importance of caregiving particularly vivid, and the life cycle of software objects is a, the best example I know of, of why that is, why caregiving should be so important if we were going to actually have genuine artificial intelligence. Um, so let me start out with the caregiving part um, about caring for machines and caring for humans. So life cycle is such a wonderful story because it raises the issue of how do you put yourself at the service of another being and also allow that being to have autonomy. And I think if we're ever going to have intelligent, artificially intelligent systems, that's going to be a really basic problem that we have to solve. And it's a problem that we also have to solve every time we have a new generation of, of humans. And I was wondering if you, you articulate that really beautifully in that story, and if you have sort of further thoughts as you've watched what's happened uh, in AI and, and just thinking about care in general. I guess I, I always feel like I need to preface any conversation about AI with a clarification about you know what exactly we're talking about, because the phrase artificial intelligence is used yes. to refer to widely disparate things, because uh, sometimes it's used to refer to the hypothetical thinking machines, and sometimes it's used to refer to basically applied statistics. So there's this unfortunate tendency to sort of conflate the two. And yeah, so I, I always want to make sure that like we are clear about what we're talking about. Um, in terms of like the machine learning programs or robots that we have now, I basically think of them as being comparable to thermostats. And, you know, a thermostat 
can be said to have a goal, but I don't think it would be fair to say that it has any preferences. It has no subjective experience. And, you know, you can imagine uh, a machine learning program that you have to train to, you know, sort of maintain the temperature of a house. In a certain sense, yeah, you are training this program, but you are basically interacting with the thermostat. And that is, I think, the situation that we are in with, you know, the existing technology. I completely agree. I mean, one of the things that I've always said is if we said what we're studying is extraction of statistical patterns from large amounts of data instead of artificial intelligence, we would be describing what we were doing much more accurately, but we would be much less likely to um, have, a, have a broad public relations reach. Yes. You know, uh, and of course, companies benefit from this conflation. Uh, they always use the phrase artificial intelligence because they want to imply that you know there's some great thinking machine uh, at work when the product they're selling is just applied statistics. But then if we're talking about you know this more hypothetical idea of machines that have subjective experience. Uh, so let's let's imagine that we had a machine that had the you know same or comp- comparable level of subjective experience to say a dog. And you can train a dog to do useful work. And you can train it using punishments or rewards. And, you know, I think the evidence suggests that you'll get better results if you use rewards to train it. Um, So that is a purely sort of pragmatic reason to, you know, treat your working dog well. But there is also, of course, ethical reasons for treating your dog well because your dog has uh, subjective experience. And if uh, we posit that at some point we will have machines that have subjective experience, then I think we will have the same ethical imperative to treat them well. And in that context, if we extrapolate further and to imagine machines whose subjective experience is getting closer to that of human beings, then all of the ethical dimensions become more complicated. Because one of the things you do with a child that you don't do with a dog is that uh, a dog will never become a person, whereas a child eventually will become an adult and will have enormous autonomy and responsibilities and an entirely different level of agency Mm -hmm. than than a dog ever will. And in that scenario, you who, who are raising or you know, training this, uh, this machine that might eventually become an, an autonomous moral agent, then yes, you have pretty much the same obligations. You have to wrestle with the same questions that all parents do. Um, sort of one of the guiding questions for me when I was writing Lifecycle of Software Objects was, the question of how do you make a person at some level, it seems like a, you know, like a kind of a simple thing, but you know, the more you think about it, you realize like uh, it is the hardest job in the world. Uh, it is, yeah, in some ways, you know, maybe the job that requires the most uh, re- wrestling with the most difficult uh, ethical questions. The, the fact that w- so many people do that, they raise children, it, it makes it very easy to devalue that. 
we tend to like congratulate people who have you know written a novel or something like that because relatively few people write novels a lot of people have children <laughs> a lot of people raise children to adulthood and what they have accomplished is something incredible i mean i think just in terms of the sort of cognitive difficulty level right i mean one of the things that we've been thinking about in the context of the social science group is that the very structure of what it means to raise a person, right, is so different from the structure of almost everything else that we do, right? So usually what yes. we do is we have some set of goals, we produce a bunch of actions. In so far as our actions lead to our goals, we think that we've been successful, and in so far as they don't, we don't. But of course, if you're trying to create a person, exactly the point is that you're not trying to achieve your goals, you're trying to give them autonomy and resources that will let them uh, that will let them achieve their own goals and even let them formulate their own goals. I mean, one way you could think about it is if you think about the kind of classic structure of economics or utility theory, which is, you know, you're an agent and you're trying to accomplish your goals and here's another agent who's trying to accomplish his goals and you have a social contract where you exchange what you do that's totally different from what happens in a caregiving situation. A caregiving situation is one where you have one agent who has power and authority and resources, and instead of pursuing their own goals, they pursue the goals of this other agent. And even more than that, they let that agent formulate their own goals, figure out what it is that they want to do themselves, as indeed the Digians end up having to do in the, uh, in the story. And I don't think we have a very good sense in politics or economics or psychology of how, you, how it's possible to do that or how we actually do do that? Well, okay. So I guess there, there are a couple things that uh, I think of with regard to this. One is there are parents who have very specific goals in mind for their children. They want their children to turn out a certain way and they will do everything they can to ensure that their children turn out that way. And they believe that they are doing what is best for their children. But, you know, they are, in a lot of ways, you know, robbing their children of autonomy. Right. And it's a very difficult thing for parents to let go of that mm -hmm. because they firmly believe that they are doing what is best for their children. And I guess I also you know, have to acknowledge that, of course, I'm talking about a sort of contemporary view of parenting. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think for much of history... There were different standards for what it meant to you know, be a good parent. And nowadays, we have this view that being a good parent is letting your child become what they want to become and helping them become what they want to become rather than bending them to what you want them to become. And in a way, I feel like this is kind of analogous to, I guess, I think what uh, Kant said about treating people as either means or as ends. Right. Um, it's not exactly the same, but there's something analogous there where if you think of your child as perhaps a means toward your goals versus thinking of them as an end, which they are, you know, they are their own subject and yeah, they're not there to help you, right. uh, you know, that's a struggle. That's something that people, you know, sort of have to wrestle with as part of existing in society. 
But the tension is, I think, you know, much more, you know, uh, more emotional when it comes to the parent-child relationship. See, I think part of it is that in, you know, the kind of classic, in the Kantian or utilitarian or most views, the picture is, all right, you've got these two autonomous agents, these two beings, both of whom can be out in the world doing things. And the question is, how do they negotiate their relationships? That's sort of the, that's sort of the picture. Yes. But the thing about caregiving, and again, the Dijuns are such a lovely example of that, is this incredible asymmetry between the abilities and, and resources that the carer has versus... It, it's an interesting paradox, right? There's one asymmetry, which is the carer has much more power than the creature that's cared for. So the um, in the life cycle, the humans could just in the program at any moment, right? There's nothing to stop them. There's nothing to stop them from doing this. They're the ones who actually have the power. And yet, in caregiving relationships, that powerlessness of the the cared for is exactly the thing that motivates the carers to do these remarkable, make these remarkable investments, make these remarkable altruistic sacrifices, again, as the as the parents, as the human parents do in the story, precisely because the other, uh, precisely because the other agent is powerless, precisely because the other agent needs them, needs their resources. And I think that's a really interesting and very human set of relationships that we don't, haven't thought about as much. And, you know, in terms of, in terms of, if we had something that was real artificial intelligence, not a statistical pattern extraction from large data sets, um, even, even a simple system, and you, you mentioned this in one of your questions, you'd sort of have to say, well, look, if it was actually going to be intelligent, one of the signs of that would be to be able to formulate new goals, formulate, formulate new intentions that aren't the ones that were just programmed into it. And it seems to me like as soon as you have a system that's like that, this issue about how do you balance means and ends and how do you balance autonomy and, uh, and care is going gonna, is gonna to be relevant, is going to come up. You were talking about the asymmetry of the parental relationship with children. And that is something that I find philosophically really, really interesting because, um, you know, most of our other relationships, you know, with say our spouse or our friends or, you know, even our siblings and certainly like anything like coworkers or people who we have economic interactions with, there is a much higher degree of symmetry uh, in, in many of the relationships there is this assumption that you are free to leave, you know, that we are both participating in this you know, relationship of our own volition, but we can end it if we so choose. And none of those things are true of the parent-child relationship. And it's also like this interesting question, like who holds the power in the parent-child right. relationship? Um, if you ask either one of them, they will probably say <laughs> the other party holds all the power. And, you know, the the child is incapable of leaving the relationship. If a parent voluntarily leaves the relationship, we pretty much think that's... About as bad as anything could be, right? Yes, yes. So, yeah, so they are stuck with each other. And, yeah, a a relationship of this type, you you would never see this among, say, two autonomous adults. You know, if two autonomous adults, you know, voluntarily entered a relationship like this, you would think they were insane, Although I think it's interesting that part of what happens with sort of committed relationships of all sorts, and this is interesting from the 
other end of the spectrum, like trying to take care of elderly parents. But I think it's also comes up in spousal, uh, in relationships between spouses, is that there's this interesting assumption, which is if it's really a committed relationship, part of the sign of that is that if the asymmetry developed, you would be committed to taking care of that person. So my husband uh, had open heart surgery this year. And one of the things that was really striking to me is this extremely dynamic, uh, independent person now is lying in a hospital bed completely helpless. And the effect that it had on me was, oh, okay, I'm really committed now, right? Like that's, this is when love and commitment and loyalty are really showing up in their, in their fullest form is when, when you do see this asymmetry between the two partners. But again, I think it's sort of invisible in the politics and economics and psychology and philosophy literature that those very strange relationships are so important and significant and play such a big role in our moral lives. And they are only strange because we've sort of normalized this economic model of interaction. Yeah, I think that's another reason. I mean, that's another motivation for thinking about the care the care project at Tesbas or thinking about it for me as a as a, a researcher, which is that it's it's odd because on the one hand, everyone just in their everyday life will recognize, you know, you ask someone, what's the most important thing in your life? What's the hardest moral decision that you have to make? What's the place where your deepest emotions were engaged? They'll tell you something about close relationships of care. And yet I think exactly because they're associated with emotion and feeling and women. Um, they're, they're, they haven't had the, uh, they haven't had the sort of theoretical impact that you might imagine, right? Um, now, I mean, it's interesting. One of the things that we've talked about in the center is there's this tradition, this Asian tradition with philosophers like, uh, like Menji, where the idea is supposed to be, well, politics should really start in those close personal relationships. And then the task for an ethics or the task for a politics is how can you scale up those close personal relationships of care to the level of a state or the level of a country. And I think you can make an argument that one of the things that the Enlightenment did, for example, was to take uh, the contractual relationships, you know, the sort of I'm autonomous person, you are, we're reciprocally negotiating, and find a kind of software in markets and democracies for scaling that up to uh, the scale of a country or the scale of the planet or the scale of a world. But it, and that's been a very, you know, the, I think that's been a very successful enterprise, but it left the care relationships or it leaves the care relationships just at the level of, okay, that's something that's private and personal and not part of the broader ethical world or not part of the broader political, uh, not part of the broader political world. Yeah, it, it's it's not the responsibility of the state to engage in care. Right. And it's not quite clear whose responsibility it is, aside from just the responsibility of the individual person. So it's strange that this thing that's so important to us on an individual basis ends up being, I mean, literally, it's invisible in the GDP. It's, it doesn't show up in any of the measures of labor or markets. Um, it's, it, you know, if, if someone's doing it, if someone's taking care in this personal private way, it isn't in the economy. It's, it's just this guy, it's this kind of strange, uh, this strange kind of moral dark matter in, in our politics. And it doesn't show up in, I, I can speak as, I can say as 
one who got her first degree and first training in philosophy, it definitely doesn't show up in the philosophical, or at least in the sort of dominant Western philosophical traditions. Uh, and from just as a sort of sideline on the economic, you know, utility question, I feel like uh, conventional economics, one of the ways that you know, it uh, sort of ignores care is that every employee that you hire, there was an incredible amount of labor that went into that employee just by virtue of that. That's a person, you know, and how, you know, again, how do you make a person? Well, for one thing, you need several hundred thousand hours of effort to make a person. And every employee that any company hires is the product of hundreds of thousands of hours of effort, which companies, they don't have to pay for that. Yeah, that's an interesting externality, right? I like that. It's like... Yeah, they are reaping the benefits of... Yeah, an incredible amount of labor. Um, and if, if you imagine in some you know, weird kind of theoretical sense, like if you had to actually pay for the, hmm. the raising of everyone that you would eventually employ, what would that look like? <laughs> you know, um, and to sort of bring this back to the artificial intelligence question and you know, hmm. thinking machine question. Um, so there's a, there's a science fiction writer named Greg Egan who... Hmm. Uh, Um, there's a line from one of his novels that I always like to quote on the topic of artificial intelligence. Uh, He says, if you want something that does what you tell it, use ordinary software. If you want consciousness, people are cheaper. And, And, you know, I think that's very true. People are cheaper because all the costs of creating people are externalized. They're born by someone else. And one way to sort of think about the project of artificial intelligence is can you create a person cheaply? Can you create something that is the functional equivalent of a person, but that doesn't require decades of labor? Because if you can do that, then you have saved yourself so, so much, you know, because in a sense, like the promise of artificial intelligence is a labor force, which uh, is perhaps infinitely reproducible, and which you owe nothing to, and this and th- this ties in with the fact that because human beings are the product of decades of life experience and social relationships, one of the things that comes from that is that we recognize that people have you know they are owed things; they deserve to be treated well. I mean, this is why I'm super skeptical of current approaches to artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. which you know, seem to imagine that if you just cobble together enough uh, enough thermostats, which you will like pull it in you know sort of different directions, like, well, okay, it'll try and maximize this and minimize that. and well, then you'll get a person. And I'm like, I think you might be able to get some some fairly useful tools with that, but I, I guess I don't think it will just as an empirical causal fact, produce a person. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think it will pr- produce anything you know, that does what people do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, you know, even when you're just doing this comparison, so this big project that I'm involved with with my colleagues at Bear at the Berkeley AI Research uh, Center, uh, so that the idea is what kinds of things could we learn from just empirically looking at how children learn as much as they do that you could imagine 
implementing to try and design artificial systems. So this is not trying to create a person. It's just, are there things that we can learn even for relatively simple problems like getting a robot that could put, you know, nails in different, um, uh, could sort nails in, into different containers. Um, and the two things that I think come up again and again are not the how much data you have or how much compute you have, but when you look at children, they're engaged with the external world. So they're doing a lot of exploration. They're doing a lot of experimentation. And they're doing it in a remarkably effective way without having a lot of sort of self-conscious knowledge about it. We call it getting into everything when a two-year-old is out in the world and exploring. But empirically, when we look at it as developmental psychologists, what we see is that they're actually performing just the right actions that they need to perform to get the data that they need to make the next discovery, to figure out the next thing about how the world works. And when you look at robotics, even just being able to get a robot that can do the very simplest things is far, far, far beyond what we can uh, far, far beyond what we can do at the moment. And, you know, even when you see the films of robot of the robots, they always are turning up the speed. So if you look carefully in the corner, you'll see that it says, you know, this is actually 10 times because the actual robots are taking so long to be able to do just, just the simplest things. But then the other thing is that children are learning from by being in social relationships. Um, and again, we can show that empirically, that children are incredibly good and sensitive to is the person who's teaching me this knowledgeable or not? Or is the person who's teaching me this someone who I think is trustworthy or not? Or is the person who's teaching me this teaching it to me in a way that will actually make contact with my own knowledge? A, a project we just started working on, for instance, is trying to see if children could design their own curriculum in an informal way. Do they recognize that they have to, you have to do something simple before you can do something more complicated, for instance, you know, just seems like a very simple obvious thing that kids do when they're learning but it's really hard to build into even a very very simple artificial system so i think the combination of actually being out in the real world getting data from the real world knowing how to get data from the real world revising what you do in the light of what happens out in the world and and coming back to that that's a lifetime's worth of experience and it means interacting with something outside of yourself and then the same thing's true about your interactions with other people and those those interactions with other people learning from other people couldn't happen unless you were in a, a social setting in which people cared for each other yes i do completely agree with you and just to you know i guess you know expand on that um well okay so with regard to say you know physicality uh yeah, I have long been uh, a subscriber to the idea that any intelligence needs to be embodied and situated. And and I think that the very first problems a baby has to solve is, you know, how do I move my body? How do I, how do I move in the world? And I think those are the same uh, types of problem solving that, you know, form the basis of every other type of problem solving, mm -hmm. you know, babies go on to do. And I think that that is, uh, you know, that is entirely missing from existing large language models. Right. And, you know, as many people have noted, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, the, just the phrase large language model is a misnomer because they're not engaging in language. They're, they're not using language. They're using text. They're, they're, they're just, you know, they're just looking at a stream of tokens. Um, but you know, language is language refers to things, 
uh, it refers to physical objects and it refers to, you know, other people. And so, you know, because, you know, these large language models, because they don't have access to the real world, they have no experience, they have, uh, they have no interaction of any meaningful sort during their training, they are not using language in the way that any you know, linguist would use the word language. You know, they're, yeah, they're just, they're just processing text tokens, which is an entirely different thing. Yeah, well, I, I, I think there's a version you could think of, which is that the large language models are sort of the postmodernist, dairy dying picture of intelligence come true. And when you see that, you think, you realize, oh no, that was wrong all along, right? Like you can't be intelligent if you're just within the text. And I think even if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, um, I think there's a pretty good argument that you start to see brains in the Cambrian uh, explosion. And what happens in that explosion is that you start getting eyes and limbs you start to be able to move and you start to be able to see and as the great psychologist james gibson put it you know you see in order to move and you move in order to see that those two things are interacting all the time so when you start getting creatures that have perception and have action that's when you start getting a brain that's when you start getting something that looks like real intelligence and that's all predicated on the fact that you're in a real world you're in a real world that's external to you you're not in this kind of postmodernist text world and you're always finding out new things about the world and you're always getting surprised by the things that you find out about in the world and you're always changing what you think and changing your representations based on those things that you find out about the world and you can kind of see that it's i think that's there's a kind of uh, uh continuity between you know the simplest organism that has eyes and claws and uh and what we do in science right where we use our intelligence and we use our ability to do experiments to figure out brand new things about the world that we couldn't have figured out beforehand. Um, and that ability, one of the w ways that people in computer science in vision describe it is as the inverse problem. I really like that phrase. So the inverse problem is there's a world that's outside of you. It's giving you data. You're finding out things about it. But you're never really going to completely know everything about what that world outside of you is like. And the great problem of intelligence, the great problem that brains are designed to solve is here's a bunch of photons hitting the back of my retina and bits of disturbances at my eardrums. And somehow from that, I'm reconstructing. There's a chair. There's a person. There's a microphone. There's quarks and leptons and distant black holes. Um, and that's exactly what humans, that's exactly what human intelligence uh, enables us to do. And again, that's very different from just taking a bunch of data, even a very large amount of data and pulling out what the statistical patterns are that are in that data. And I do uh, just want to say something about, because uh, I, I have seen people defending large language models uh, say that critics are placing too much importance on, say, you know, sight and sound as modalities. And I want to, I just want to, you know, make clear, like, I'm not demanding that the modalities specifically be sight and sound. So do you think we need to kind of follow the, um, the rough pattern of biological evolution if we want to create something of comparable to hominid intelligence? Like, do you think we will be going through a step of something like 
something as smart as a beetle, and then somewhere later, something as smart as a mouse, mm -hmm. and then somewhere later, something smart as a dog, and so forth. Do you think that it would follow th that pattern? Well, I think it's, you know, I think if you think about evolution, uh, I think there's, I think there's a common impulse that we have, which is to think about what they used to call the scala natura, you know, as if there's this kind of scale uh, across nature of things that are more complex or more human-like or whatever the measure is. And of course, if you're thinking about biological evolution, what matters is what your ecology is, what the environment is that you adapted to, that you're adapted to. So, uh, you know, the kind of computations that bees can do are amazingly complex, given the um, and and beautifully adapted to the environment in which they find themselves. And as everyone knows, you know, if you think about ants as being uh, uh, super individual intelligences, they are doing an anthill is doing an incredible amount of uh, computation relevant to its particular its particular environment. But I do think that you could say, look, what are the dimensions that are the relevant dimensions? And and this dimension of being able to deal with variability and unpredictability is definitely a dimension that is relevant to us, very relevant to our human intelligence. Um, you know, you could say that our ecological niche is the unknown unknowns. That's that's what we're adapted. Uh, that's what we're adapted for is being in an environment where we're not quite sure what's going to happen. Uh, we're, we're not quite sure what's going to happen next, and we don't even have certainty about how certain we are about what's going to happen next. And uh, and for that environment, which is perhaps anthropological, Pacentrically, what we think of as being the environment that really intelligent creatures are in, um, you really need to have a different kind of process than the kind of process that we typically see in in uh, in AI. So I think I think a way of thinking about it is we could I think it would be easier maybe to design a an intelligence that was adapted to. Um, an insect environment than to design an intelligence that was adapted to the kind of unpredictable, variable environment that human beings are are in. Um, but I think a, a way of thinking about it is what are the tasks, what's the environment that you think that this intelligence is going to be functioning in and adapted to, and then think about how you could design it, uh, how you could design it for, in those terms. But one thing that we know is those intelligences that are really good at dealing with a lot of variation and unpredictability do have this characteristic that it takes them a long time. Um, it takes them a long time in the sense that uh, they have a long childhood, but also for humans it takes a long time in the sense that we get a lot of our adaptation across generations. So we have, as we were saying before, you know, we have cultural evolution, so we have, we have change taking place both in individuals and over time. And I think it's kind of unlikely that you could just get a static, a single static machine or computer doing particular computations that could that could have those kinds of characteristics. So this leads to this question that I had about sort of like the length of generations if you are yeah. iterating. Yeah. And uh, so hypothetically, if you had a some digital organism or, you know, thinking machine, which was, we'll say, you know, comparable to a chimpanzee, and your goal is to get a digital organism that is comparable to a human. And so you can you can make you know whatever modica modifications you want to 
like the genome of this organism, but you can only tell what the effects are by actually watching it navigate its environment. And, you know, one question I have is, how long do you have to let each generation run before you can tell whether your changes are moving you in the right direction? Um, because from a, if we're going with a very biological analogy, it's like, you can tell, say, a chimpanzee baby <clears throat> is different from an, a human baby within, like, a year, probably. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but that's still a year per generation. You can, you know, like you can't really tell, I, like, I don't know how quickly you can tell, you know. And, much, and, much and of course the, the interesting thing is that if you were comparing a chimp baby to a human baby, what you'd say is the chimp baby is much more competent, right? So if you, if you were looking at the, if you're looking at the beginning, and this is one of the interesting facts about development in general, I mean, uh, a chimp by the time the chimp is seven is producing as much food as it's consuming. It's really competent. And if you were to compare human infants, for example, with the infants of most other species, you would say, boy, that is not a good bet, right? Like, I mean, this thing, like it can't even feed itself. It can't move. And look, here's this baby horse that's getting up and moving and doing all the things that it's supposed to be doing uh, as a horse or even better. Uh, here's this baby chicken. That's the kind of classic example in evolutionary biology. Here's this baby chicken. And by the time that baby chicken is a couple weeks old, it's basically just as competent as a, an adult chick. You compare that to this completely useless, helpless, um, um, weak old baby. So you really wouldn't know until some fairly long period of learning and development had uh, learning and development had taken place. And of course, if you're thinking about humans, <laughs> you could argue it's still sort of up for grabs, right? Because we have this cultural evolution piece as well, which means that our capacity to learn and understand is taking place over generations. So you might very well, I think this is kind of interesting, you might ask the question right now, Oh, is this going to turn out to be an intelligent species or is this going to turn out to be a really badly adapted species that disappears, becomes extinct after a short period because it turns out that its cognitive, it turns out that its cognitive capacities were not actually well tuned to, uh, uh, to its environment. So I thought that was a great question, um, but I think it's a question that you could ask about, well, one answer is it, I think it will take you longer rather than shorter, that it's going to be if there's a creature, if there's an intelligence or a system or a computational system that you could tell right away what its computational capacities are, that's not going to turn out to be the really intelligent system, that what the sign of an intelligent system is going to be that you're going to have to see how it develops, not just how it develops over time, but how it develops over time in interaction with an environment and, and in interaction with other agents. Um, uh, but I, I think it's also an interesting question about would you end up concluding you, you might not you might not have a good take until really late in the process about how well adapted this intelligence was. So it seems to me that you're trying to create an intelligent organism, you need a very long developmental period in order to achieve a high degree of competence farther down the line. Then each iteration will have to maybe run for many years. You will not be able to iterate quickly because it will require interaction. You, know, you can't automate it. You can't let them run you know, by themselves. Someone is going to have to interact with this thing for years before you get a really good sense of 
this is much smarter than the last batch. And that actually raises something else I wanted to ask you about with something that comes up in both Life Cycle and in some of the other stories, which is time, thinking about the way that human beings are living in time. And I think it comes up in the caring context. It comes up in in some of the things that you've described, where you don't, you know, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. You don't know what what the possibilities are. Um, and I think the fact that humans live in a, a world where time isn't, say, cyclical, or time isn't uh, isn't completely symmetrical, the way the aliens in in Story of Your Life lived their lived their life, that we have this sense of a sort of single vector of time going forward into the future really changes the way that we function. And part of what you've done, I think, in your work is think about what would it be like if our relationship to time was different? Science fiction as a genre is about change. I usually describe science fiction as a as a post-industrial revolution form of literature because science fiction stories tell a a kind of story that was inconceivable for much of human history. Because Mm. for much of human history, you could safely assume that the future would be like the past. Mm. Your grandchildren's lives would be fairly similar to your grandparents' lives. It might be a different king, but there would still be a king. And only, you know, roughly speaking, after the Industrial Revolution, or arguably also possibly the, the French Revolution, there was this idea that the future would be different than the past, maybe very different than the past. And I think science fiction comes out of that realization. Our conception of time in the modern era mm. is in, in many ways a product of the Industrial Revolution and you know the, just the pace of change that we have now become used to. So then from a different standpoint, just about our perception of time, the, the idea of time is, say, linear. The idea that like maybe the future lies ahead of us and that we are moving toward the future. There's also you know, this, I think, fairly well-discussed uh, anthropological discoveries about how different cultures perceive time because of the way their language works and the way that just their culture conceptualizes time. And so... Well, in Story of Our Lives, what was were you thinking about physics or were you thinking about uh, this cultural relativity? Because it's, it's such an interesting idea to try and think about what would it be like if you were interacting with aliens who really had a different relationship to time than you did. What sense could you make of their language? And So the inspiration for that story actually did not really come out of linguistic relativity or cultural relativity. Um, for that story, I was interested in idea of inevitable loss, the inevitability of loss, that um, one of the things that inspired me, I was watching this this one-man show where this performer, he was talking about his wife dying of cancer. And there was a point when, you know, they knew how it was going to end. And uh, and I I was very, I I was very moved and affected by that. And, you know, the more I thought about it, you know, it seemed like, yeah, I mean, that is one of the things that is part of being human, that we can, we, we can conceptualize the future in a way that 
I think dogs cannot. And we know that we will suffer losses in the future. I think one of the things that maybe, you know, one of the things that sort of marks a passage from being a child to being an adult mm. is recognizing the fact that you will suffer losses in the future. And how do you cope with that? How do you move forward with that? For story of your life, yeah, what I was interested in there was telling a story about someone who has this very specific, this really explicit knowledge of yeah. a loss that lies in her future and how can she, how can she live with that? Mm. Okay, so Ted, is there a piece of scholarship or actually a piece of philosophy or uh, more abstract thinking that's especially helped you think through some of the themes that we've addressed or that you found particularly inspiring for your writing or maybe more than one? It's not exactly a, a piece of scholarship, but um, one of the things that I, I think had a big impact on my thinking when I was working on the life cycle of software objects was this book called Creation by Steve Grand. Um, he's a computer programmer and his his sort of, I guess his specialty is artificial life, you know, uh, creating right. digital uh, organisms uh, that are you know, fairly simple. But in this book, he talks about sort of his theories about um, the relationship between artificial intelligence and artificial life. And he he makes the argument that you can't really abstract out artificial intelligence from artificial life. Hmm. And so he's not just talking about, like, say, embodied embodiment and situatedness. You know, he's going you know, further into... Um, things like, you know, you know his, his, he has digital organisms that have, you know, kind of like the equivalent of hormones, which, mm -hmm. you know, uh, right. govern, you know, their drives and, you know, the, uh, but he, he, he actually makes the argument that something cannot be intelligent unless it is in some sense alive, that there are maybe like there's something fundamental about the kind of, um, like the metabolic interaction between an organism and its environment that is maybe essential to intelligence, which I find very interesting. I'm not, you know, like, I, I don't know. I, I can't say that I, I'm completely convinced, but, you know, I think he, he made a very interesting case. You know, I, I, and I do wonder, because yeah, if he turns out to be correct, I feel like, yeah, that might have a lot of interesting implications. Yeah. Maybe you couldn't have an a real artificial intelligence unless it actually like needed to eat hmm. you know um some you know some some analog to eating and then you know there might be other like implications about like because like it would be very easy to think that oh an artificial intelligence would be immortal but it's like actually maybe if it has like kind of like a metabolic component to mm -hmm. it like you could easily make it immortal but you would the interventions you'd have to make would be very comparable to the interventions you would have to make to make a human being immortal like it would not be sort of immortal by default it might you know it might actually mm -hmm. uh be so closely tied to you know these processes that keeping an artificial intelligence alive forever is a comparable problem to you know keeping a human being alive forever and so I'm not going to say I'm 100% on board with everything he, he has concluded, but uh, yeah, his book 
was definitely uh, in my thoughts a lot when I was conceptualizing lifecycle of software objects. Allison, I guess I uh, should ask you, you know, in, in return, can you uh, recommend a work of fiction that has helped you think through like some of the themes that you address in your research uh, or have some work that has otherwise inspired you in this fellowship that you do? Yeah, so I was, I was thinking about this, and um, there's a certain kind of category of children's books, since I'm studying children, that also have the character of giving you a kind of a picture of what it would be like to have a mind that was really different from the sort of typical adult mind. And books like Alice in Wonderland, which everyone knows about, but I think even more and more obscurely, Mary Poppins, is a really nice example of a work of fiction that gives you a sense of the sort of strangeness of perspective that you would have and that you do have when you're a child. People, unfortunately, the movies have sort of messed up Mary Poppins for the popular imagination, so you just think of it as being like Julie Andrews. But in the books, what happens is that there's this very sort of banal, ordinary existence of these children growing up in... in a small portion of London in Kensington in the 1920s. But because of the what, the what the relationship to the magical nanny does is just give you a sense of how strange and bizarre just going to the park or going to the grocery store is. And the fictional device of having the magic is just a just a tiny bit different from just the perspective of the children as they follow this rather acerbic nanny around through their everyday through their everyday existence. And that's that's a nice example where just a little bit of fantasy in the fiction gives you a sense of just how fantastic the actual reality is, especially um, especially for a young child. That's really interesting. That is, yeah, I, w- I would not have expected that. But when you when the way you describe it, you know. Yeah, that that makes sense. I, I, I can see that. And I think fantastic fiction, you know, often has that sort of numinous quality or it captures that sort of numinous quality better than realistic fiction does. Um, but that, even though it's fantastic, it's actually a really good realistic depiction of what a lot of our real experience of life is like. Well, this has been such a center for advanced studies in the behavioral sciences conversation. It's exactly the sort of conversation that makes uh, my heart soar every time I walk up the hill into Casbus, is that you're going to have conversations that cross science and social science and the humanities and the physical sciences all all wrapped up with one bow. So I think that was a really beautiful example of exactly the sort of conversation that you can have sitting in this local place at this time. So thank you so much, Ted, for climbing up the hill with us and uh, being part of it. Well, um, and thank you, Allison, for having this conversation with me. Um, This was a, a really great conversation. I'm glad I was able to come visit the center and if this is the type of conversation that happens regularly here, it's like, well, then, yeah, I, uh, I, 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 uh, I would love to come back. That was Allison Gopnik in conversation with Ted Chang. A quick reminder, we've got a lot of great links in the episode notes today. You'll definitely want to check those out. And as always, you can follow us online or in your podcast app of choice. 
And if you're interested in learning more about the Center's people, projects, and rich history, you can visit our website at casbs.stanford.edu. Until next time, from everyone at CASBIS and the Human Centered Team, thanks for listening. <laughs>